Hello and welcome back to the show. Today we're talking to triple threat Dr. Uma Naidu, who is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a professional chef, and a nutrition specialist. She's here to tell us all about the food-mood connection. And guys, this is an awesome interview. I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Dr. Uman Nadu, we are so excited to have you on our first episode in 2021. So thank you for making the time to, for the be on the show with us. Hi, Matt and Sarah. It's really great to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Excited to be here. So you were a total fan favorite um, during the Gut Brain Solution. Um, people loved what you, you had to say. Um, and it's little, you know, that little, it's quite easy to understand when you look at your qualifications. Um, all the work you do at Harvard in you know, nutritional psychiatry, which is this amazing emerging field. And we're just super excited to dive deeper into this food, mood connection, and um, yeah, learn more about it. Happy to do it. You know, I love talking about this stuff. So Awesome. All right, let's geek out. So let, <laughs> uh, let's just start from the basics. So you have a patient that you're seeing and they're struggling to see that connection between their mental health and the food they're eating. Where do you start with them and how do you explain that to them? Absolutely. You know, sometimes I, just, I start asking them some very basic questions because quite often people are not putting together how they feel after they eat a meal. They might say to a family member, they might say, you know, I feel tired or I went and lay down or I had some brain fog this afternoon. Uh, but, you know, or I felt foggy, I should say. But they don't put it together with the food that they eat. And often if I just start asking the questions, I'll start to pick up on symptoms that they've been having for a while but haven't identified. And what is the, what the really cool part is, is they don't really know or haven't thought that it was related to what they're eating in terms of their emotional state. And that to me is, is always super helpful to break down for people and to talk to them about the gut-brain axis and, and how it makes an impact. And as they start to put the pieces together, you really just see kind of the light bulb go off and, and they realize that, you know, what they're eating is, is impacting their emotional state and what they could maybe be doing differently. And uh, that's, that's usually a really cool moment. Awesome. So what are some of the ways, if we just dive into some specifics, obviously with the, uh, yeah. during what we've just been through as a, you know, um, as a global family with the pandemic, um, mental health has mm. been critically, you know, quite bad for a lot yeah. of people. Um, so starting yeah. with, say, anxiety, um, is there certain foods um, that people just wouldn't expect that would be potentially triggering their anxiety um, or making yes. their mental health condition worse? Absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to anxiety, even though people associate refined uh, and processed sugars, added sugars with, you know, type 2 diabetes or maybe some weight gain, they don't realize that it actually drives anxiety. It really worsens anxiety. And then, unfortunately, they sometimes think, well, I should give up soda and I'll try a diet soda or a, a diet drink. And unfortunately, the artificial sweeteners then start to drive the anxiety. So, that becomes sort of a double-edged sword for them. But then there are also the processed um, vegetable oils, which are often used in fast food restaurants uh, because they're inexpensive. So that's another very pro-inflammatory uh, ingredient that starts to worsen anxiety over time. And then it's the, you know, the processed, ultra-processed kind of junk foods and fast foods that have a lot of added um, stabilizers, food colorants, dyes, 
added sodium and things like that that just unfortunately really push our anxiety uh, in the wrong direction. So those are just some of the few um, to, to be aware of um, and maybe a limit to cut back on. And there are others that, you know, are more about fine-tuning, that things like alcohol, gluten, and coffee. They don't have to be excluded by any means, but certainly tweaking how you respond when you drink a cup of coffee or have a glass of wine. And if those those um, those drinks or those beverages really drive your symptoms, then you really have to be careful. Thank you. I'm I'm seeing a common thread, obviously, in what you've said and um, in terms of inflammation and um and its impact on mental health. Could you tell us a little bit about, um, I, I guess, a, a little overview, uh, briefly, if you can, of what inflammation is? Because I know that's a term that's used a lot, sure. and a, I think the actual understanding of that is it maybe a bit low. And then how, why yeah. that's so pivotal for our mental health? Absolutely. So you know, inflammation is actually we should understand that it's an important process for our bodies, just norm, in normal health. So if you stub your toe or you fall over during a, during a game and you kind of scratch your knee, um, there's a healing process that the body takes care of. So as that little wound heals and you develop a scab or, um, you know, the little toe stub starts to heal, inflammation has an important process. But we are talking about really when that, that inflammation goes beyond just normal initial healing process and continues and becomes more chronic. This tends to happen certainly in the gut in um, when, say, we're eating a lot of processed uh, pro-inflammatory oils in our diet, like, um, you know, and we're having those foods that I just mentioned. What tends to happen is that we know from research in a 24-hour period, the microbes of which there are about 39-odd trillion microbes in the gut microbiome, the microbiota as we call them, they start to change depending on the food that we eat. And you may not feel it immediately, but it starts to evolve and change. So I always say to people, if you've made a healthier choice that day, they're going to, you know, the, the good microbes are going to be doing well. But if you've kind of been going down the junk food, fast food path, then bad microbes are going to be happy that day. You don't feel it immediately, but it starts to set up the basis of inflammation. And I think that you know, there are many, many other factors that affect the gut. I just want just want to mention it, things like stress, hormones, circadian rhythm, poor sleep, immunity, all of these things really get regulated through the gut. But when we look at just nutrition and food in isolation, if we are making unhealthy choices, they basically break down into not so great substances in, in the gut. And those not so great substances are really creating what but are more like toxins. And ultimately, you know, when bad microbes are thriving and overcoming the good microbes, they basically set up the gut for inflammation. What I like to say to people are two things. One is that gut inflammation is brain inflammation. It may not happen immediately, but it's a feedback to the fact that we know the gut and brain are connected. So when you start to have inflammation there, and I've seen this clinically so many times, people may actually present with mental health symptoms sometimes. And, you know, when you trace it back, they've, they've changed their diet or something's happened. And so, and then the other thing I like to say is a happy gut is a happy mood. So if you're taking care of your gut microbes and you're feeding them and you eat those prebiotic foods and having your probiotic supplement and, you know, fermented foods and all the things we hear about, like fiber, then they're going to be happy 
and you know you're going to feel better overall. So it's important for people to understand that that basis of inflammation is really what we ultimately end up calling dysbiosis, or we call it leaky gut, or the clinical term is intestinal permeability, and that's really the setup for uh, for problems in in the gut. Can you dive a little bit? Further, I just like I find this whole thing so fascinating, and um, I know I've got like an amazing research mind here. So, um, (laughs) dive specifically as to you know inflammations in the gut. Is there sort of like a a summary of that journey of it reaching the brain, how quickly it reaches the brain once there is inflammation there? Um, Yeah, sure. Take us on a little overview of that. Sure. So some some of how that happens, and it does happen sort of slowly and steadily over time, and it does depend on, you know, a, a person is usually, say, assuming a not-so-healthy diet. But basically, the gut lining is a single-cell layer, though, is that thin. And, um, you know, we talk about microscopically, we talk about this thing called a tight junction, which is what holds the cells together. So if you think about how long, you know, the, the gut is, and it's it's really has a single cell lining um, separating the products of digestion from the breakdown of food to the circulatory system, which is the blood system. So if you think about, you know, say I ate a healthy salad, breakdown products, and I had all the biodiversity of um, different veggies in there and the colors that I need for my antioxidants and polyphenols, it gets broken down into good substances. One of those, for example, are short-chain fatty acids. Those actually help our brain, they help our body, and as they get broken down and they get transmitted into the circulatory system, it's a good thing, right? But on the other hand, if I'm eating, you know, that fast food diet, you actually may get breakdown products which are toxic and actually feeding and being produced by the bad microbes in the gut. And when they enter the circulatory system, they actually start to to kind of create chaos, right? Because they enter the circulatory system, they are going to get to the brain, they're going to get to other parts of the body, and that's when they start to really cause mayhem. Even if it's in a small way initially, it builds up over time. And that's the important thing for us to understand, that it really is um, accumulative. So you may not feel it immediately, but we know from from research and from what we've studied that it starts to happen uh, when you make those those good food choices or the not so good food choices. Interesting. So how does that then? Because I think people understand, you know, serotonin, for example. So how does that mm-hmm. process then impact someone's brain chemistry um, that they may feel is right. either broken or off, or not be understanding that brain chemistry connection to their gut? So there's a few different things with with the brain chemistry. Um, one is that um, the you know ninety to ninety five percent of the serotonin receptors are housed in the gut, and uh, there's a lot of production as well in the gut as well as other neurochemicals. Now, the issue in the brain is that when when the brain is is starting to get inflamed, it's not functioning in the way that it should. So you know it's 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 basically not using the positive neurochemicals or the way that it should. Um, so, for example, if a person is prescribed, let, let's look at it this way, if a person is prescribed an antidepressant, the antidepressant is there to balance the neurochemicals. Often, you know, whether this is an accurate explanation or not, doctors will say, well, you know, we're trying to treat a chemical imbalance. Well, but, you know, I, I won't comment on that, but what I will say is that many people hear it that way. So it's just an easy way to say that when the brain is inflamed, it's it basically is out of balance. 
and and it's not using the neurochemicals there that are meant to balance our mood, our anxiety, and be you know as part of that um, the part of the chemical messages that are transmitted between the brain and the gut, and the gut and the brain through the vagus nerve. All of that chem- chemical signaling goes up, and I think a, a, a nice way to think about it is that we're not getting um, our neurochemicals. Serotonin is often called the happiness hormone, and basically, serotonin is not working in the way that it should for us. And that's where you know, doctor who's prescribing the prescription is trying to help with the uh, serotonin transportation to help your mood, or, or say help your mood or lower your anxiety. But of course. They often used for several other conditions as well. Awesome. Thank you. So we discussed food to avoid for anxiety, mental mm-hmm. health. What about the foods that you are your go-to foods for your clients wanting to improve their mental health? Absolutely. So, you know, I start off with um with I start off simple because it's really an almost building blocks. And what I find, Sarah, is that the building blocks are ultimately going to, believe it or not, help their physical health and even at times help them lose weight. But it really these are important aspects of the mental health. And usually I have to link the the effects that they have. So let's start with something simple like prebiotic foods. Prebiotic foods are bananas, oats, uh, the allium family, garlic leeks, um, uh, onions, and they really really feed those microbes in the gut because they're prebiotics and they bring back the great fiber that those uh, microbes need to thrive. Then I talk about, you know, probiotics are usually a supplement. So if you have a good supplement, you know, that's helping you, good idea. But another way to get in those um, live active cultures is actually through fermented foods. And fermented foods are fun. They can be miso, kefir, um, tempeh, natto, uh, kombucha, so many that, you know, people use and have heard about, sauerkraut, pickles. Those actually bring back some great live active cultures because of the process of fermentation to your gut. So they're bringing back some sort of friendly bacteria to your gut. So those are some simple things to do. But then it's also building up on your fiber, right? Because I, I might have said to you all before that, you know, we we worry a lot about how much of protein we're getting, but actually we're very much lacking in fiber in our diets. And the fiber is really from um, vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, healthy whole grains, lentils, legumes. And you can't get it from animal or seafood protein. So we've got to get in that cornerstone of vegetables and fruit. Uh, My favorite is vegetables because, you know, they're pretty low calorie. You can eat a ton of them and feel quite satiated. They bring back so many different nutrients, vitamins, minerals, but they also bring back antioxidants and the different colors, the biodiversity are known to be good for our gut and those gut microbes. So the biodiversity is important. The antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects are important. They interact with those gut microbes. They ultimately are going to work to create those positive substances our gut needs for us to feel emotionally better. So that's one one big group. And then I like leafy, leafy greens, you know. Leafy greens are sort of understated because people sort of roll theirs. Oh, one more doctor saying I should eat a salad. Well, it turns <laughs> out that, you know, the spinach, the kale, the arugula, the rocket lettuce, I think it's called in some countries, um, dandelion greens, all these cool greens are very rich in folate. Folate is a huge building block for um, for mood, for example. Low folate levels are associated with depression. But, you know, um, it's not only important for us, it's just a great nutrient to build back. It has iron in it. 
Again, these are nutrients which our body and brain need. So adding those leafy greens becomes important as well. So you know, as you build, build these up, and then you go to things like omega-3 fats. So omega-3 fats, you can get plant-based sources, walnuts, chia seeds, flax seeds, um, or you can get omega-3 from salmon um, or sardines. So, you know, you get the, 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 um, you, you get your omega-3 fats and omega-3 fats have actually been shown to help both depression and anxiety. So if you take it as a supplement, you're taking it through different forms of food. These are great for your overall mental well-being. And, you know, if you happen to take an omega-3 supplement, you can also take a vegan supplement. If you don't eat fish, you can get an algal oil supplement, which um, are, are really great and people do well with them. So, you know, they're just ways to start to have what I consider pillars or building blocks of building your sort of foundation for better better mental health. And it starts with some of those things. Of course, there are more, but but that's a good way to start. Awesome. That was such a cool tour through food, you know, it was so well summarized. So thank you for saying that. I was following you through the grocery store in my Yeah, mind. I was like, wow. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so obviously this is quite like this nutrition, mood connections, very uh, like a, a, you wouldn't say a, like a new field, but it's something that um, science is taking really seriously. Was there some landmark studies yeah. that were um, done that really started to shift your perception or to, to get academia focusing on? Mm you know, really drilling down into food and the mood connection. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that one of the things to point out is that the burgeoning amount of gut-brain research, that's really what I based my book on, was the connection between the gut and the brain. And hence the first chapter of my book is called The Gut-Brain Romance. But, um, but because, you know, doctors who studied, say, uh, more than two decades ago, really were not taught about the gut microbiome because it's really new and emerging science. For example, between 2013 and 2017, there were 13,000 new publications in the gut microbiome and studies related. So, you know, I was very excited about delving into this research and really picking apart the ones that were associated with mental health. And I started there and then went through the different conditions and where they associated, you know, studies that looked at um, human trials that, that compared, say, the use of a probiotic to um, through yogurt um, with, with live active cultures compared to Prozac, you know, or a, a study in schizophrenia that was really about transplanting um, the microbiota from uh, someone with schizophrenia into a germ-free mouse and replicating the symptoms. You know, I think there's very, very powerful facts in all of this showing us this real connection. And I don't want to overstate the research. Um, there's, you know, still continuing research around the gut-brain connection in mental health, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we can guide how we eat to improve our mental well-being. And that's really where I focus my attention because that's the gap, as I mentioned earlier, that people are missing, that we can tweak this. It's at the end of our fork. We have the power to do it. You know, you can be working with your doctor on a prescription, but you can always be eating differently. We have to eat, we eat every day, and why not do it in a healthy way? And then there were studies that were looked at many times. The Mediterranean diet has been studied, and there were some powerful studies. The HealthMed trial, for example, is one I'll point to. That really showed a connection between how people were using the Mediterranean diet, eating the Mediterranean diet, and improvement in scores of anxiety. So, at the, uh, in, in in scores of mood and actually predominantly mood. But you know, um, I think that. Those types of larger studies really taught us that there was this there was this context 
for the improved mood food connection. Um, and then there were studies like the large database studies out of Harvard, like NHANES, that also looked at simple things such as, you know, when people cook their meals at home, which I think really is something we should pay attention to in the pandemic, um, you know, we consume fewer calories just naturally. And we may not even be following a calorie restricted diet, but we just eat healthy. And part of that is, you know, we sort of know what's going into the food and there might actually be a way in which we are preparing this in a slightly better way than if we went to a restaurant. So I think that these, when you put together these different um, different factors and you understand the connection through the gut-brain axis, it becomes a very powerful piece of information to start to share with people. And, um, you know, I, I don't overpromise people, but I actually have had good success in, in clinical, uh, in my clinic at Mass General and in my clinical work of people following through on these different guidances in how they eat to feel emotionally better and to reduce symptoms, even by simply avoiding foods that they didn't realize were driving symptoms. Um, you know, uh, uh, and surprisingly, even in anxiety, people who really become more cautious about those added and refined sugars will come back and say, I felt better a few days later after I started to cut back on the candy I was eating um, or, you know, some, you know, the sugary donut they were having for breakfast or whatever it was. Excellent. Awesome. Um, on that last point that you mentioned, the the sugar. What is it about <laughs> sugar that is causes it to wreak such havoc on our bodies and particularly our mental health? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think I think that um, we we understand that you know added refined sugars affect type two diabetes and insulin resistance. We've known that, and I think that that's um, something no people understand. Um, is impactful in that way, but metabolic health in mental health has become crucially important. You know, 88% of Americans have one abnormal value in their metabolic panel. So we are really struggling in the US with, with how we're eating and how we're doing around metabolic health. But metabolic health is also driving um, the worsening of our mental health condition. And that is because of the burgeoning incidence of type 2 by diabetes, as well as people being overweight, which has really also been shown up in the, in the pandemic. When you think about sugar, there have been some very important research studies that basically showed that sugar activates the same reward pathways, the dopamine circuits in the brain, which are the same circuits that cocaine uh, is, you know, when you use cocaine, it activates the same circuit. So it helps us understand that there's this um, addictive quality that it has. There was also a really interesting study in February in a nutrition journal that talked about foods being made in a hyperpalatable way. And when they made that way, they really become addictive to to our psycho to our psychology, but also to our palate. We just want more of them. You know, so for example, I might have told you this before, but um, fast food in the US, our French fries have added sugar. You don't taste it, but they're added in because research and development has shown that they become hyperpalatable. So that's why if you go to, to a drive through, you always upsize the French fries. And when you upsize them, you can't put down that bag. You want to finish it. You know, you can't, it, there's a way in which they've been developed that way. One of the reasons is there's a very subtle level of added sugar in them. So sugar is everywhere. 
Um, you know, there are upwards of 200 other names for sugar and food labels that people don't realize. Uh, my favorite one to quote um, is brown rice syrup because people associate brown rice with a healthier grain. Uh, my doctor said it was better than, you know, white basmati rice, but it's actually a form of sugar. So it's, it's really helping people identify what to look for on a food label or what to watch out for. And um, sugar is wreaking havoc, you know, just in our on our mental health, but on our physical health as well. So unless we somehow find uh, a better way to handle it, 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 it's going to continue because it's really in so many things that, that we eat. 100%. And it, it would make sense, right, you know, back from an evolutionary perspective, we would need to, yeah. you, know, you know, eat all that fruit to make it through winter. But now it's just now food, food companies. Oh, we have the energy to, yes, absolutely, yeah. to have the energy to flee from a predator, you know, Absolutely, you need you need that. But I think what's what's happened is that, you know, the the food system has evolved in a way that our our palates are somehow. It's a funny thing. I I, I wrote this in an article recently in the U.S. I, I sort of said, you know, there are many parts of the world where you don't have a donut for breakfast. You know, in 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 in, in the U.K. and you know probably in Australia as well. You know, a donut it's like a, a, a part of high tea or something you have in the afternoon. You don't have it as breakfast. And I sort of said, you know, when did when did like high tea foods and cakes and donuts become breakfast? I don't know, but you know, we have a really sweet palate in the U.S. and breakfasts are breakfast foods are very very sugary. So. Excellent. So that's kind of what we've gotten used to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know from that, from my own experience, my own battles with mental health that, um, I mean, intuitively start learning of this, of like I'd eat like, you know, something really sugary and then anxiety be much worth racing thoughts and things like that. Yeah. And then yeah. intuitively yeah. start to work out, oh, alcohol, sugar, these things can become quite triggering foods from my own experience. Abs- yeah. They are very triggering foods and good that you recognize it. Not, not everyone you know, puts the connection together. You would hope that I would learn after all these interviews that <laughs> I could start making the connection. It is, it is an interesting <laughs> process, learning how to listen to your body. Um, I, I think yeah. when we're, we're not really trained to think that way. And um, no. and, uh, and you, Matt, used to think I was so weird because I, I guess I was always so sensitive. I was aware of that connection. But, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's interesting how little we think about how food actually makes us feel. So I have a question, and it might be a bit of a controversial one. Um, but, <laughs> but obviously in the foods you mentioned before, you were talking about all these foods in particular that really are good for our microbiome, our, our fiber and our, um, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on the carnivore diet, which obviously meat, mm-hmm. you mentioned, does not have fiber. Um, I'm curious as to what you think about um, the impact of the carnivore diet on mental health. Sure. So, you know, the other thing I I really should say when I talk about fiber, because I I really am fiber forward in that I I do feel like in the U.S. we're missing, counting our protein um, grams and missing fiber. But, you know, there are also conditions, as you both well know from the different series that you've done, that there are conditions like SIBO and um, IBS and several others that you have to be so careful about a fiber load because it could be very uncomfortable. So I understand that for some people that that isn't a general rule for. But um, coming to your question on the carnivore diet, you know, I think that 
this really goes back to my philosophy around food, which is that I really don't believe in fads or extremes. Um, when people go toward a diet or claim or make a statement that, you know, this is the only way to feel better, I feel like it's very polarizing and my patients come in very confused. And they, they think that they should never look at a vegetable again. And I know that that may not be the case, but but remember that, you know, people interpret information based on how they receive it. And sometimes it's the messaging that gets very strong, or sometimes people may not realize there's more to the story than what they initially hear. So I think it's my issue is more that I don't think we can point blank say that there's a best diet for mental well-being. So whether that is carnivore or vegan for that matter, we can't say that it's one diet that cures mental well-being. I think that the evidence is still being studied, nutritional psychiatry, while we've practiced it for a while, there's a lot of emerging evidence that comes out. So I really cannot wholeheartedly say, you know what, carnivore is the way, because I know that that individual is missing out on nutrients that they need. And it's the same issue that I have with any form of extreme diet, that they might be vital nutrients that a person is just missing by, uh, by not consuming certain types of food. I think in mental health, the, the plan has to be highly personalized because we know that the gut microbiome is like a, like a thumbprint. And we realize that it has to be tweaked based on that individual's um, likes, dislikes, foods that they can tolerate um, and what they like to eat as well. So I don't really know the, the evidence to support a carnivore diet in mental health. I'm, I'm sure that there are people who feel that it does, but I feel that it would really be excluding too many. In fact, everything that I mentioned at the early part of this conversation would be excluded. And, and I, I don't quite know how, how that could work. So, um, you know, that I, I think, I, I think it's becomes really important to guide people with mental well-being because they're also already vulnerable from kind of walking through life, coping with, you know, that, that heightened feeling of anxiety or panic or tri being triggered by sounds, um, or foods or whatever it is. So when you then impose, well, you can only eat this, I think that makes it too hard. And and that in from that perspective, I'm not not a fan. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. Um, I think it would be amiss for us not to touch on this because considering your background, um, it's why we love talking to you. You've got such an interesting, you know, history of like food, but meditation and yoga is something that was part of your life. And we may be entering the front, you know, the um, maybe the edges of science in this part of the conversation. <laughs> but I think we should just talk about it in terms of that impact of a of a treatment plan with a patient of yoga, yeah. meditation. Can you take us through why those, you know, those practices can be really effective in treating mental health? Absolutely. You know, I think that um, they, they're no longer on the edges. Um, in fact, they're quite, they're quite studied in mainstream um, literature now. There was a study that was published last year um, that looked at uh, breathing pranayama yoga and the impact on both cardiovascular uh, the cardiovascular system, but then also depression and anxiety. And I remember we posted about it on Instagram because it showed an improvement. Um, so I feel like, you know, that uh, I practice a holistic, integrated and functional approach to psychiatry. So part of that is, you know, my grandparents taught me yoga and meditation. And um, I sort of bring that forward because I feel like it's not just one thing, even though my focus and my research um, is, in, is on the nutritional aspect, you really can't say to someone, um, 
you know, or I should should frame it this way, you have to remind someone with anxiety disorder to always hydrate because dehydration can present as anxiety. You always have to remind someone with whatever condition that they have to eat regular meals. And I'm not talking about a fasting diet, I'm just talking about regular meals because sometimes people forget to eat and they become hypoglycemic and they can present with a panic attack. I've seen it happen. So I think that it's putting it all together, uh, sleep, hydration, movement, exercise, yoga, and where mindfulness, Matt, really fills a very big space for people is it that, you know, if you can use a form of gentle yoga to help ease the anxiety and to really bring down your kind of heightened system um, feeling in your body of anxiety to almost center yourself or ground yourself through a movement, maybe it's qigong, maybe it's yoga, maybe um, it's a form of meditation that you like. It is such a powerful tool that people can lean into. It's hard in the middle of a panic attack to say to someone, oh, do this. But if on if as you're coaching them and working with them on a good and comprehensive plan, they are learning these techniques. When it happens and when they are struck um, by, you know, an unfortunate panic attack or feeling of anxiety because they're triggered by something, those, you know, what you want them to be is in a state of mind where they can tap into the resources where they've learned a breathing exercise or they've learned to listen to an app on their phone that can listen to, say, music or something that calms them down or um, even walk them through a meditation, which helps them. Those things become powerful. So, you know, it's it's really important to, to use that integrated approach because if someone said, oh, because if you think about it, right, the power of the prescription pad, you know, the, the, the way that many, many uh, physicians expected to practice in the U.S. is, you know, here you come in, you have the symptoms, here's your prescription. And it really excludes everything else. So even in mental health, you know, I think all forms of therapy are important. They're extremely important um, along along with if you're taking a medication, but so are all of the other components that make up that circle. So I think that if we, if we paid attention to that integrated approach and we really thought of it in a holistic way, I think that people would just have like a little a little kit they're walking around with about 10 tools in there, you know, that they could they could tap into. And that's what I like about it because at a given moment in time for mental fitness, you may you may want to do one thing more than another, but you know that you have them available and nutrition of course is one of them. Wonderful. Thank you. Such a powerful message. Thank you. And um I think you're definitely contributing to that Swiss Army knife um of approach <laughs> to mental health that we, that we need. Yeah. Um, and you're doing a fantastic work <laughs> yes, and it's so needed. You. Um, your book's amazing. So, yes. it, and it has thank different you. titles, which thank makes you. it so, fun. Yes. Which makes it yes, yeah, different it. titles so, so. everyone. <laughs> so this, I'm holding so the Australian title. Yes. Yes. And so that's also available in the UK, India, and South Africa. And the one that I'm holding, uh, this is your brain on food. Try to move it the right way because I'm... <laughs> <laughs> It's like reverse. So funny. So this is the, the version in, in the US, um, the hardcover version in the US. And it's also been released in about 15 countries. So we, if you follow me on Instagram, we have an infographic of the countries where it's been released. But this will roll the rollout over the course of 2021. Um, and it's in different languages. So so we're excited about that because we receive interest from a lot of people and always want them to know we, we're trying to get the book to them. Awesome. So an amazing book. And just for our audio listeners, you just yes. want to re- repeat this is those your titles? Brain on Food is the U.S. 
title and then the food mood connection is the Australian, British, South, Af- South African version title. <laughs> yes. And, and India. Yeah. yeah. India. Yeah. Yes. And Wonderful. India. Well, so make sure um, you get that book because yes. I think this, this, as we've just spoken about, this is um, an exciting field. Absolutely. Um, it's, we're not talking woo-woo here. We're talking like later science mm-hmm. and um, it's, and I think so many people that are, so many people listening to this would be, um, or watching would be perhaps thinking of that relative or that friend that they're like, oh man, if they just cut this out. Um, so equip yourself, get the book, learn the principles, and then you can, you know, you can be part of that conversation. You can be a bit like Sarah that used to try and make that connection for me before. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'd have someone from Harvard explain it to me. I'd be like, Sarah, okay, gotcha. He finally listens. Definitely, I think, I think, um, I think, in as far as mental health goes, a lot of us have been, um, you know, so a bit sold short on what's possible, what the tools that are available. And I think um, it's wonderful, Doctor and I do that. You're really um, adding to that toolbox, as you said. And um, I think these books are okay. an awesome resource for anyone needing, to, wanting to make a change with their mental health and their whole body health, for that matter. <laughs> um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, and uh, I know that you've been hustling on your social media, Dr. Naidu. Um, so I think I, I, I actually love your Instagram. I think it, you're Thank always you. posting um, great studies and great applications yeah. as to why they're relevant to your uh, listeners. So anyone that wants to, that uses the gram, make sure you do give Dr. Naidu a follow. Her user is Uma Naidu. Oh, sorry, what is it? Sorry, <laughs> I'm about to say it wrong it's, for you. It's, sure, it's, it's, that's okay. It's at DR. U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, right at the bottom of your screen. So it's at Dr. Uma Naidu. And thanks for saying it, sir. We, you know, we're always interviewing fun people. And, you know, I, I talk to chefs and I talk to celebrity chefs and I talk to nutritionists and, and doctors, you know, it's, it's and, and fun people. So we love that. Actually, you guys should come talk to me on Instagram. If we can just figure out this time zone, we should yeah, do that. That would be awesome. Ah, fun. Awesome. <laughs> Why not? We love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been our privilege to have you. Um, and thank you. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on Instagram. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll see you there. Awesome. Thanks so much for inviting me, guys. That was awesome. I loved it. Yeah. Such a good interview. And um, it's kicking off 2021 season very well. <laughs> uh, let us know what you think in the, the comments. Like, are you aware of this food mood connection? Um, how important do you think this is? Uh, we'd love to hear from you, actually, mm. because we actually think, you know, you really should grab this book because this is like a a, yes, um, a message that we like this world needs to hear. So, yeah, let us know in the comments. Yeah. yeah, let us know in the comments um, what food impacts your mood. <laughs> if you mm. really think about it, have you noticed any patterns there? And um, yeah, I think, yeah, as Matt was about to say, and I cut him off, I'm sorry, babe, that uh, <laughs> this message couldn't be more pertinent for the time that we're in. So um, yeah, I hope you got a lot of it out of this call and um, definitely definitely grab that book. Yeah. And so make sure you like and subscribe. Many of you are not subscribed, naughty people. <laughs> um, and hit that like button to just help get this message out um, in the algorithm land of YouTube. So we need your help. Thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys soon. Bye.